Hello, hello. In this episode, we will discuss what is better. Biodegradable, compostable, bioplastics, bio-based plastics, recycled, and what do all of these terms actually mean? It's important to understand the differences to be able to judge materials. You will hear from Julia Goldstein, the author of the book Material Value which was also the finalist in the 2019 San Francisco Writers' Contest, and it has been recommended to me. A very good book. Julia is a writer with a material science background and trade press experience. Her second book, Rethink the Bins, is coming out end of November 2020. This episode is packed with know-how, so let's jump right in. You're listening to Season 2 on Plastic Alternatives. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. For resources and to get involved, visit redtogreen.solutions. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Julia, great to have you on Red to Green. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with some of the basics. What is actually considered to be plastics and how would you define them? We're talking about organic materials, meaning things that are made from hydrocarbons, molecules of carbon and hydrogen, and they are polymers, meaning they're these long chain molecules that have many of the pieces of the individual little hydrocarbons in them, and they're synthetic or processed. These are not naturally occurring materials. Unfortunately, they're all over the place now. You go in the oceans and you go on the beaches and you find them, but they don't belong there. And I can get into thermoplastic versus thermosetting, but that might not really be relevant here. But it's important that they can be formed into all kinds of different objects and films because that's what makes plastics so useful for a lot of different applications. Well, I think actually your point on thermoplastics versus thermosetting is relevant because that has a big influence on whether they can be recycled in the classic sense, right? Yes, absolutely. So most of the plastics, especially ones that are used in packaging food and other types of products, are thermoplastics. Thermoplastics can be heated and cooled multiple times. Mm. When they're heated, they melt, and then they can be formed in various different ways, and then they cool back down, and they become solid. You can do this over and over and over again, which means a lot of them can be technically recycled. Now, whether they actually get recycled, that's a whole nother story. But thermosetting polymers, those are usually comprised of multiple different components that are put together and they have a chemical reaction and then they become a polymer and you can't just melt them and reheat them to make the same polymer in the same way you can with thermoplastics. Mm. And... You've been touching beforehand on the topic of it being a synthetic material. Sometimes people call it organic as it is derived from once upon a time organic materials. So that's something that's usually misunderstood. Yes. Yes, it has carbon in it. If you think about organic chemistry, you're thinking about something that has to do with carbon compounds. But there's different ways to use the word organic. When you're thinking about organic materials, really it means something that was much more recently living. If you think about your food or a piece of wood, that's not a processed 
material. It looks very much just like it came from nature. But Mm -hmm. the plastics come from fossil fuels, and then they're made into these polymers. So you take these small molecules, they undergo a chemical process, and they become a different type of material. It's highly processed, and Mm -hmm. the fossil fuels are not anything that was recently living. So that's also at the heart of the issue when you look at petroleum feedstock that we are releasing the CO2 that has been stored under the earth where it belongs. And then what I find interesting is that if you look at the recycling rates versus the amount of plastic that's burned, people who argue for it being burned uh, say, well, you can get the energy back but actually you are pretty much just burning fossil fuels with that. Yes, it's interesting because, for example, companies that say, okay, we have zero waste to landfill, there's a number of ways of achieving that, and part of it can be some burning waste for energy. And I think that should probably be more of a last resort. The first way should just be to use less stuff to begin with. Reduce your incoming resources and make your processes less wasteful. But there can still be value in converting it to to energy if it's done safely versus just put it into a landfill. Yeah, there's so many ways of putting certain concepts in a way that sounds good in that field. But actually, if you look deeper into it, it turns out that it's uh, far from the good solution. Let's start going through all of these confusing words and definitions used within that context. So does plastic actually biodegrade? Because there's the difference between something just degrading and biodegrading. What is that kind of difference? It depends on the type of plastic, but most of the conventional plastics that everybody is familiar with do not biodegrade. For something to be biodegradable, it needs to degrade into simple compounds and elements. For example, water and carbon dioxide. If it breaks down into that level, then it's biodegradable. Mm -hmm. But if it just breaks into tiny pieces, which is what happens when you plastic bags and you just set them out into the sun, they're going to start breaking into little pieces. Yeah, and interestingly, there are these oxo-degradable plastics, or sometimes they're also called oxo-biodegradable, it's actually degrading by being exposed to air, right? Yeah. And there was a while back, a movement toward creating plastics that would do that more rapidly Mm -hmm. with the idea that, okay, that was going to be helpful because they could break down more quickly. But the problem there was if you mixed those with other types of plastics, then you've got a mess for the recycling situation where you're contaminating a batch with a different type of plastic and you're really causing more problems than you're solving. So I know Europe a number of years back, not that long ago, said, okay, we really don't want these oxo-degradable plastics. This is not Mm -hmm. the right way to go. Yeah. It's just speeding up the process in which it degrades. And with oxo-degradable plastics, you would still have the issue with the marine environment, with birds and so on, consuming the plastics. Absolutely. At some point, I talked about an ideal plastic that would be not only 
recyclable, but would also degrade and would be marine safe, right? It would be marine degradable. It would degrade in a marine environment down to safe, simple compounds, not tiny bits of plastic that all the marine animals are going to ingest. For example, plastics made from shrimp or lobster shells. And there's a protein, the chitin protein, that can be made into plastics. It's not really quite done on a large scale industrial level right now, but those, if they got into the ocean, could biodegrade safely. Ah, fascinating. So what about compostable? There is industrial compostability and then there's home compostability. Yes, and it is an important distinction. To be industrially compostable, a material has to break down to fragments of a certain size within a certain time period, generally six months, although there's some composting facilities that'll create compost in about eight weeks. But it's also got to be non-toxic. You can't have heavy metals in there. They're very strict requirements. You don't want lead, cadmium, those kind of toxic things in the compost. But industrial composting facilities, they grind everything up. So they can take fairly large pieces. For example, in mine, where I live, our curbside yard waste takes all kinds of stuff with food waste and compostable packaging and branches and leaves. And branches just need to be less than four inches diameter. I mean, that's fairly large, but they can grind them all up. They heat them at a high temperature. They control the water content. They control the temperature and humidity very precisely. And they receive such a large mass of stuff that they can get the mix they need. But if you compost at home, you don't have that scale volume. You probably don't have a grinding machine that is going to grind up everything into small pieces. And so it's going to take a lot longer to break down. Mm -hmm. Now it will break down, but if it's not going to break down fast enough, you're not really going to be able to have the compost. And then there's also the issue of the right amount of green matter and brown matter, right? Green is more like the apple cores, recently fallen leaves, grass trimmings, and the brown is like the brown leaves. You can even use you know shredded paper, that kind of thing. And so you've got to have the right balance and you have to have the right amount of water in it. So people do home composting, But you can't just toss in anything and assume you're going to get good compost. Yeah. And it takes a certain dedication to do a compost. To actually also have the space to be able to do it. I'm not sure if you would want to have that inside the house, actually, if you even find the space to have it inside of an apartment. I today saw a documentary where it was mentioned that San Francisco incentivizes citizens to do industrial composting because they have to pay more for putting things into black bins, whereas they pay less if they put things into the composting and the blue recycling bin. So that I found quite interesting. And they seem to have quite a bit of success with actually picking up the trash and creating good compost, which is used on local farms, etc. How often do you already put plastic-like compostable materials in there? I don't tend to have those except for the bags, of course. Mm-hmm. So my little three-gallon container, I line with a compostable bag. And the 
those are actually made from agricultural materials, like from corn stalks and things like that. So those are the main source of it. I don't tend to have a lot of those, say, compostable plastics, but I can tell you that a lot of people put stuff that doesn't belong. I went to Cedar Grove, which is the name of the company that does our industrial composting. They have a facility where you can go and you can pick up a whole truckload of compost or mulch to use in your garden. I did this and I looked and at one point there was a piece of those stickers that we have on fruit and a little piece of a plastic straw and something that looked like it was once styrofoam. And these were all in my compost. So they try to screen out contaminants like that, but obviously they don't do it 100%. Part of the message is that it's everybody's responsibility to put the right stuff in the right place. In Germany, as far as I've been living in Berlin, I have never had a composting bin here in terms of it being provided by the landlords, which is shocking because Germany prides itself to be so big on recycling. It would be really interesting to me to look into the future. What if we would replace the recycling facilities with industrial composting facilities and replace all of the let's say, non-compostable plastic with compostable options. How would these two different scenarios measure up? Well, I do believe that expanding composting is really a good thing. In the United States, I read that only 2% of communities in this country have access to the kind of curbside composting of food waste that we have here in Seattle. Most mm -hmm. people don't have it, but it could certainly be added. But yes, you need to build more composting facilities. I wouldn't say to just get rid of the recycling facilities because it's not going to be easy to just get rid of conventional plastics. And yeah. there are also issues in large scale switching over to bioplastic alternatives because those are made from plants and The question is, do you have acres and acres of crops that now you're growing to make plastics? Hmm. Ideally, those would say come from agricultural waste, which to some degree they do, especially if you think about the fiberboard boxes that replace styrofoam. Like if you get a takeout meal and mm -hmm. it looks kind of like cardboard, but it's not. It's a fiber that's made from, say, the wheat stalks aren't edible. There's trade-offs, right? If you just suddenly large-scale make a shift, it's not necessarily going to go as smoothly. And just thinking that as long as you've got compostable plastics, all is well, they don't contribute to the nutrient value of the compost. If you put in food scraps and leaves and branches, those have value. Those have nutrients that help make the compost healthy for growing plants and vegetables. But taking a compostable plastic fork and putting it in there, yes, if they chop it all up, it will degrade and it'll degrade into pretty much carbon dioxide. It, it's not really helping the compost. And so some cities here don't take those. Like oh, wow. in Portland, mm -hmm. Oregon, they don't accept those kind of plastics into mm -hmm. the compost. But I mean, that's also 
question of priorities. In that scenario, getting good compost and getting good soil seems to be the priority. But then if an industrial facility has the priority of replacing plastics as good as possible and therefore composting the alternative products, even though the soil may not be as good, that could still be a good option. Yes. And I think especially in places where you've got food service to a lot of people and well, Mm -hmm. someday we'll have say large outdoor events again, (laughs) like music festivals or sporting events. And there, if all the food comes in compostable packaging, then it can all be dumped into one bin at the end and taken for composting. Because the idea that, oh, then people have to separate out. And if it's recyclable, then it is contaminated with food, which is a mess for the recycling system. For those kind of things, I think providing all the food in compostable containers and with compostable servingware is a great solution. Yeah, but it seems to me like the plastics is definitely not the way forward. And therefore, there needs to be some good alternative solution. And as you describe in your book, plastics are not such a novel technology. They've been created in the 40s, 50s, and so on, mostly. So there could be such an opportunity to have new innovations, which are actually now cutting edge, replacing something that we've been using for many, many decades. So what is the path that you see forward towards a more sustainable food packaging solution? I think there's a mix of things. Sometimes the best packaging is no packaging at all. For example, if you buy a bunch of bananas in the store, do you need to put them in a plastic bag? They're already in their own packaging, the banana peel. But plastics do have a benefit in keeping things fresh. For example, carrots, if you just put them by themselves in the fridge, they quickly become all limp. They don't even last a week. But Mm. if you put them in a plastic bag, they will last. I think there are probably many opportunities for businesses throughout that supply chain to minimize the amount of packaging. And some of it is necessary to protect the food, right? You've got this trade-off. If you don't package things at all, you're going to have a food waste problem because the food Mm. is going to arrive in a condition that it's damaged or spoiled. But there are opportunities like these plastics that are based on proteins. From Mm -hmm. shrimp shells is the one example. Also, milk-based proteins. Those can be made into a stretchable film. And I think using that for, say, wrapping cheese would be fantastic. A film based on milk protein that then just will dissolve in water almost. That could be really good, but you have to explain to people how to use it. Hmm. What would happen with that milk-based protein film once you're done with it? Would that go into compost? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be filtered out in, I don't know where it was, San Diego? No, in where do the plastics or plastic looking like materials get filtered out? In Portland, Oregon, they don't want to accept those. But what they're talking about is stuff made from PLA, polylactic acid, which is a type of bio-based plastic, meaning 
It's made from plants, often corn, wheat, sugarcane, but it looks like a conventional plastic. And it will technically biodegrade, but not easily. That is the specific type of bioplastic or compostable plastic that Portland says we don't want. But something like this film based on a milk protein, that should be absolutely compostable and I would think should be accepted everywhere, but Mm -hmm. it's not in common use yet. That's very interesting. Good that we clarified this because PLA, at least in my head, is just one way of having a compostable plastic alternative. But then you have all of the other variations that are being developed right now, various companies working on waste-based solutions, but also we may have some other companies on that use other feedstocks. So that's really good to know Portland has not said, well, anything that looks like plastic or anything that is called industrially composted, we are not allowing, but they're just not allowing PLA specifically. What is your opinion on PLA? I think it's useful in some cases, like I was talking about, especially for takeout food, and you can just take the whole thing when you're done with it, whatever scraps are left, and then put it in the compost. But for an everyday solution, I don't know, I see it being a problem. And part of the problem is labeling, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to have to take out my reading glasses to figure out whether my cup is made of PLA or something else. And is it compostable? Is it recyclable? I think labeling is going to be an important part. You need to make it very clear to people. And there's a natural food market in my neighborhood. They have some new compostable packaging that is very clearly labeled. It's PLA. And it says, compostable packaging, do not recycle. It's large and obvious enough that someone would see that and know. But a lot of people think they can just put it in the recycling. It's a plastic cup, but Mm -hmm. it will contaminate the recycling. Yeah. I mean, it's always tricky to do things based on behavior change. At the top of my head, I think what could be an option is finding a way to have PLA-based plastics marked in a certain way that optical scanners are able to identify them and sort them out automatically. Do you think that is an option? That does happen. Mm -hmm. And yes, some of the labeling happens. In fact, some of the PLA-based forks and spoons, they have a hole in the handle. It looks kind of like the shape of a leaf, which is kind of pretty or what have you, but it serves an important function in that the sorting machines will recognize this is a compostable fork. This does not belong in the trash. This does not belong in the recycling. It belongs with the compost. And with, say, the cups, the labeling, it's often done in a green ink, but you could have an optical system that will recognize that and put it in the appropriate place. Mm. Yeah, and that's again a topic of regulation and being able to push that forward so that all of the compostable products share a common denominator, a way that makes it relatively easy for the recycling plants to sort that out and for composting facilities 
to realize that this actually belongs into the compost. I sometimes have the feeling that these opportunities are being swept aside as this is not working at the moment, but there is a lot of money flowing into recycling because clearly it's not properly working. This is a system that would have the possibility to work well, but it will need time, energy, resources to get to the state in which it is actually a good solution. But I could imagine once it is at that state, it could be such a helpful contribution to moving towards a somewhat circular system. I think so. A lot of the problem is funding. Yeah. The compost facilities are having a hard time making ends meet as it is, and they don't necessarily have the money to invest in extensive sorting systems. And I guess there isn't the huge industry behind it to sponsor it. Well, we have already talked a bit about bioplastics. To make it official, what are bioplastics? As far as I understood, it's both bio-based and biodegradable plastics, which are referred to as bioplastics. Yes. Bio-based means it's made from biomass, which are recently living organisms, not the fossil fuels that have been underground for thousands or millions of years, but plant matter and this type of thing. There's some naturally occurring bioplastics, like natural rubber from a rubber tree. But generally, we're thinking about things that are specifically manufactured to be plastics. And then we mentioned before biodegradable, meaning it degrades into simple compounds or elements. Are there other examples of bio-based plastics that we haven't touched upon yet? I think just the fact that you can make conventional plastics like polyethylene as a bio-based plastic. For example, ripening fruit mm -hmm. releases ethylene gas, and that can be condensed and made into polyethylene, which is like plastic bags. If it's made from agriculture, then it is bio-based. But when it's done being processed, it's exactly the same as a plastic bag. It's not going to biodegrade. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of the source and where it comes from. And would it be able to be recycled in the same oh, way? Oh, yes. Just like any other, no matter where the original source, whether it was natural gas deep underground or mm -hmm. a pile of rotting fruit, once it's processed into polyethylene, it's the same exact material. It's chemically identical regardless of the source. It can be recycled. It can't be composted, all that. But there's also new plastics that are being created from mm. bio-based materials. And some of the stuff is still being developed. Like you can take cellulose, which is a naturally occurring polymer from trees, and make that into usable plastics. Yeah. And cellulose is an example of a material that a lot of people aren't aware of where it comes from. Is cellulose for you a good example of a um, sustainable alternative? It could be. I think, again, it's a matter of where it's coming from and what it takes to process it, right? Mm. You don't want to be, again, cutting down acres of trees to produce cellulose-based plastics. 
Now, maybe if you could make them from fast growing plants like bamboo, I don't know if anybody's doing that. But, you know, if you're cutting down oak trees to make plastic, that does not, to me, sound like the best way to make use of resources. So how much of an issue is the use of agricultural land when it comes to plastics? Do you know how much we would actually need to make a complete switch to bioplastics? I don't have numbers on the top of my head, but I'd like to see a system where the default is to use agricultural waste because that already exists. Hmm. Let's touch a bit on toxicity. I was very shocked to read in your book how hard it is actually for manufacturers to evaluate the toxicity of different, let's say, ingredients and that attempts to actually create these red lists of toxic materials have failed. Could you elaborate a little bit about how toxic are the plastic products that we may use in contact with our food? That can be a really difficult thing to determine. And you mentioned these different lists. I interviewed someone who said, yes, he looked at a bunch of different lists. And there are some things that are obviously toxic, lead, cadmium, everybody agrees. But there's a lot of things where there's contaminants that will be listed on one list, but not another. How do you really know? And the other question is, how much is allowed? There mm. will be government regulations that say you can have a certain amount of a contaminant and then it's safe. But is it really safe? I think a lot of the trouble is in doing the testing. I mean, it's definitely possible in a lab to measure what different chemical compounds are in a plastic, but quantifying what are the real human health risks, because in doing studies, there's so many different variables. People are exposed to so many different things in their day-to-day -day life. How do you know that their cancer was caused by some specific thing? That came up with these perfluorochemicals, perfluorocarbons, They're jointly known as these PFAS chemicals, and mm -hmm. they're used in making stuff like Teflon. They were being released into water streams all over, and there was a huge, many, many years long legal challenge to say, can we prove that these illnesses that people had were as a result of exposure to these chemicals, even though you could tell these chemicals were present in at least 10 times larger concentrations than are supposedly safe. Mm -hmm. But can you prove that their condition was because of that and not something else? That's one of the difficult pieces because a lot of the health issues are not the plastic itself. It's the additives yeah. that are put into these plastics to improve their properties. They make yeah. them flow better so they can be more easily manufactured into products They make them fire resistant, other types of things that are helpful, but they're actually dangerous to human health. Yeah. What would be some tips for individuals who want to avoid the risk of being exposed to toxic ingredients? Things like not heating your plastics or not putting hot food into plastic containers. Definitely the issue of heating 
is one part of it. If you think about a Teflon pan, the Teflon coating itself is inert. The big problem with the contamination was in the process used to make it. But if it's heated to a very high temperature, it starts releasing some of those compounds. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely part of it is don't heat it extensively, but sometimes you can just choose not to use that. For example, instead of a Teflon nonstick pan, you can go back to the original nonstick of cast iron. Now it's heavy. Cast iron pans are dang heavy. So there's drawbacks that way. And you don't want to just let them soak in water because they'll rust. So there's other things you got to take care of. And some of it may just be choosing not to use plastic to store Mm. your food in glass instead of plastic containers. Mm. What about aluminium or steel? I would say stainless steel is great for things like reusable water bottles. Mm -hmm. Or I think a lot of us were not used to metal drinking cups. I mean, that's what people used to have long, long ago. They would drink from metal or glass containers. I think maybe it's just a matter of getting used to it. Yeah, to get to some of the closing questions, if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest in? It's not limited to food. I would want to look into B Corps, benefit corporations. And those are companies that incorporate the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit into the way they run their business. They've got to report on a whole host of issues and demonstrate that in their the environment, the way they treat their communities and their employees, the way they organize their business, that they're committing to good practices. I would think of some of them are involved in things like better e-waste processing mm-hmm. or solar energy companies that are really stepping up and trying to do business in a way that seriously considers its impact on people and the planet. What upcoming packaging innovations or trends will be especially interesting for the food industry? Well, we already mentioned some of these animal-based proteins that could be used to make plastics. Another thing that's kind of fascinating is the idea of microbes that eat plastic. You can create plastics that could be eaten by microbes. How can listeners reach out to you? I've got a couple of different websites. My author website is juliagoldsteinauthor.com. And I also write content for businesses. So if you're a business looking to create more website content or articles about all the great stuff you're doing, my business website is JLF Goldstein. Cool. We will have the links and the show notes for anybody who's interested in checking that out. If you like Red to Green, remember to subscribe and share it with your colleagues or friends who could be interested. To volunteer in industry research, marketing, or writing articles, check out redtogreen.solutions. There you will also find resources mentioned in the episodes. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.